minors from 14 to 7 years of age, uh, nearly 18. Um, the rec committee recommends and the board of directors supports as well that these minors could, uh, with their tutors or parental parent, could make a request for MAID based on the level of uh, persistent and intolerable suffering that they may experience and become unmanageable and senseless. The same for babies from zero to one years of age who are born with severe uh, deformations, very uh, grave and severe uh, syndromes, medical syndromes, whose life expectancy and uh, level of suffering are such that it would uh, make sense to ensure that they do not suffer. Okay, welcome back uh, to the war room. I want to bring in Naomi Wolf. Naomi, uh, this is pretty scary. Tell me what we just watched. Yeah, so this is an actual Canadian um, medical advisor speaking to the Canadian Parliament, I believe it's in Quebec, and he's advocating for the expansion of an existing um, assisted suicide or euthanasia program, I suppose is the way to put it. And instead of uh, euthanizing, which is bad enough, you know, people at the end of their life in intolerable uh, pain or will never recover, he's recommending that they just kill babies up to one year old. And it doesn't even have to be a parent making the decision. It can be a tutor or an intermediary making the decision. Um, but just, just kill them. Uh, because they may be in pain, their quality of life may not be good. Not that the less than one-year-old can tell these officials whether they want to live or not. Um, and and it's terrifying. It appears to be part of a, a, a systematic and well-established um, now Canadian euthanasia and assisted suicide program. In addition to this about extending it to little babies, um, there's a substack by Rupa Subramanya, um, called Schedule to Die, the Rise of Canada's Assisted Suicide Program, which has a chilling, terrifying story about a woman who found out that her 23-year-old son, who was depressed, he'd gone blind in one eye, he couldn't keep a girlfriend, you know, he had challenges in his life, but he was depressed. He was otherwise healthy and, and having a tough time. He'd made an appointment um, in two weeks to get killed by a doctor um, named Joshua Tepper through this uh, program where you could just call up and make an appointment to be murdered. And she had two weeks to stop this doctor from killing her son or stop her son from making an appointment to be assisted in suicide. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking, but it's part of a bigger picture we're seeing. Um, it goes along with bills that we've seen, I believe, in Washington State and in Maryland that really, truly do um, loosen the definition of murdering babies so that uh, you can let a baby die basically after it's born um, up till uh, some time after after birth that's what we're saying. when you for when you first by the way let's get the substack article about let's, what she's referring to I want to get all these materials so captain Bannon we need to push this out so the audience can immerse themselves in this Naomi wolf uh, you you have you're a descendant of from people that um, uh, suffered and died in the Holocaust, right? You you were the first to warn us about this concept of the Nazi doctors, right? right? Who were the? Remember at that time Germany was considered one of the, if not the premier medical in the world, the Nazi doctors. 
when I see this with the vaccines and all this stuff, what? how is this different? Because then you start picking and choosing. You know, it starts with the horribly deformed and 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 um in uh in, in terrible pain yet at one year old how are they supposed to tell us that but then the definition and the definition right there yeah you, you can have a tutor or an advisor or i mean where does this stop is this is this your construct of the nazi doctors yeah you're asking the right question steve there's literally no difference um the early i believe it was about 1930 to 1933 uh a program was launched in Germany exactly like this, like literally exactly like this, in which uh, doctors and um, healthcare organizations were empowered to uh, decide who was life unworthy of life, who was a useless eater. And they specifically exactly started with disabled kids, um, mentally uh, impaired kids and teenagers. And they finally kind of took them away to the very earliest, like before there were concentration camps, before there was anything more organized. They took these young adults away from their parents. They told them they were getting medical treatment. The parents got a postcard saying, you know, your child's gone. Um, but it was exactly this language of they're, in, they're, they're not, um, they're a drag on the rest of society uh, and they're, they're not life that should be sustained. It's, it's uh, hygienic to the rest of society to do away with them. And you're right to notice the slippery slope thing. And by the way, I just want to say, like, as always, I, I told you this day would come, right? I said, then they come for the children. Then they put people into ovens, right? Then they, they have the quarantine camps. Well, so here we are, and, and not just in Canada, but in the United States, where the definition of murdering a, a child that has been born has gotten yeah. loosened in two states. Um, the, they always start with life that you can make a rationale that, oh, yes, people are so impaired kindness to do away with them. But then it's, of course, you know, whoever you don't like, Jews, dissidents, gypsies, homosexuals, um, political opponents, editors. MAGA. Ma uh, MAGA. <laughs> just to throw out a random, just to throw out a random concept. I mean, this is what's, I remember when you first said this on the show, I think it was a year and a half ago, people, heads blown up on Naomi Wolf, this is thing. And you kind of predicted where you're going to get here. Well, it only took 15 months yeah. Wasn't years, wasn't decades, 15 months. And here's what's so scary about it is the bureaucratic, I think it was Hannah Arendt that wrote yes. the, what, the banality of evil. What yeah. was so powerful about that clip is how how administrative state it is, how bureaucratic. We could be there talking about it, putting in a road or a new computer system or some, I mean, it's just so devoid of human empathy or emotion or anything it's just it's it's the it's the bureaucracy almost like a it's almost like the brave new world film right yeah it, at first i thought is this a parody or is this some sort of stuff this can't actually be and you think about canada which is so, you know progressive and thoughtful i mean how could this be going on and i think our audience wants to know how can we stop this what what is the we understand we got the vaccine fights the other fight but when you start doing this what is is this politically you got to vote it out of office or what are people to do? Uh -huh. oh, that is that is the ultimate question. I mean, if we don't have the right administration, there's nothing we can do in Canada because we're not Canadian citizens. I mean, I guess the thing that's most chilling to me is that, as you say, Canada is a sane, uh, compassionate, progressive, inclusive country. And, and Canadians are, you know, becoming inured to this. They're listening to it. They're not... Um, you know, rising up and shrieking, <laughs> you know, these are, these are living children, 
you know, you can't do this. This is a criminal. You're proposing murder. You're proposing state sanctioned murder. Um, and, and it is chilling language. Like it makes sense too. But honestly, I mean, I'm getting so Old Testament these days. Once you have a euthanasia program, this is where it goes, right? Once you say human life isn't sacred, this is where it goes. So back to your point, how do we stop it? Um, I mean, I think we <laughs> we need to support dissidents in Canada, like the truckers, like, um, you know, those tiny civil society groups, and I can send Cameron some links to them, that are bringing lawsuits against some of the worst tyrannies. But most importantly, we need to change administrations. I'm supposed to be nonpartisan, but, you know, there is a murderous regime aligned with this kind of ideology running our country now, and we have to change, you know, who's in charge all the way down to the local level, um, and then we can do things like sanctions. You know, we can, like, we used to yeah. sanction who didn't let girls go to school and now we're fine with Canada, you know, murdering children up to, you know, proposing the murder of children up no. to one year old. Um, we have to have a, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but we have to have a pro-life foreign policy. <laughs> Hang on, I want to get all the, I want to get all the, uh, the uh, links up on the live chat and on this thing. Uh, Christy Wade, one of the uh, mothers fighting at the board level, going to join us next. Uh, and I've got Dennis talking about Old Testament. I got Dennis Prager for an hour from six to seven. You know what we're doing? We're talking about the Old Testament, how the Old Testament can be a moral and intellectual guide uh, for us today. Uh, Naomi, I want to pivot now. You were the first one to start talking in the research with the War Room Posse and with Amy Kelly and your team of lawyers about the, the issues with, to mothers, babies. And then in Scotland, they started yeah. to have some articles, but it looks like we, you got some blowback today. Can we put up the Scottish the Scottish Herald story? Tell us what's going on in Scotland right now, ma'am. Yeah. So um, I think this is related, actually, to what we talked about a couple of days ago. You may remember that I was on GB News, which is now a big show in Britain, an independent show. And we were presenting the War Room Daily Cloud uh, research volunteers' findings, especially on what's causing harm to to. Uh, childbirth and and to babies and to nursing mothers and um this got allegedly 411 complaints and an offcom investigation but it, it has put some heat on uh people demanding answers because the women of scotland were the ones who had and the bbc covered this a doubling of the babies who died and i mentioned this on the air um dozens of babies in a month have been dying in scotland you know 200 percent rise so uh what's so you know shocking is that uh, public health officials told the Herald, a Scottish um, kind of center, centrist newspaper, um, that there was no plausible link between the mRNA injections and the deaths of the babies in Scotland, but they gave no link, no data, and no reason. They didn't even give the names of the public health officials that were being right. Well, Amy Kelly and I just wrote a very stern letter to the reporter um, who wrote this story and gave her all the links to all our research showing that there is more than a plausible link to the mRNA vaccines. They're causing damage to placentas, damage to babies and so on. And we're demanding that they cover it. And we're gonna keep um, we're gonna keep covering their either coverage or non-coverage. And I also said you've got to give us the names of they need to be accountable for what they said. Naomi, can you give a daily clout where people go to support you? The book is on Amazon, the bodies of others, and also your Substack, where do people go? Yes, it's dailyclap.io where all these reports are. Um, my subscribers, I'm 
got really homeless on Getter. And it is, as you said, Steve, a war against babies. We have to fight for them. It's a war against babies. Thank you very much, Doctor. I want to give any parent with a child in the chamber to remove them if they would choose to do so. No, start two minutes. Two minutes. Two minutes. I'm sorry. Can you can you go ahead and with your speech? Not until it's reset to two minutes. Your time has begun. No, reset it to two minutes. All righty. This book is gay by Juno Dawson was found in a seventh grade classroom at Collinswood Middle School. It was also on the ELA recommended reading list for seventh graders at J.M. Robinson. I'm going to read from chapter nine, the ins and outs of gay sex, starting at page 201, part one, boy on boy sex. Perhaps the most important skill you will master as a gay or bi man is a timeless classic, the job. Good news is you can practice it on yourself. The bad news is each guy has become very used to his own way of getting himself off. Learning how to find a partner's personal style can take ages, but it can be very rewarding when you do. Something they don't teach you in school is that in order to be able to at all, you or your partner may need to finish off with a handy. A lot of people find it hard to through other types of sex. That is fine and certainly not something you have to apologize for. A good handy is all about the wrist action. Rub the head of his back and forth with your hand. Try different speeds and pressures until he responds positively. A bad handy is grasping a and shaking it like a ketchup bottle. Finally, my misunderstanding about rubbing two peens together wasn't far off the mark. Rubbing them together in one hand feels awesome. Mega combo handy, trademark pending. It's no wonder that 92% of CMS graduating seniors aren't college or career ready when you're instructing them on how to give jobs and handies instead of teaching them how to add and subtract. Superintendent, you stated this book was, quote, brought into the classroom by a teacher with no intent to allow students access. Any teacher that puts material like this on his or her bookshelf is either a bad teacher or a pedophile who grooms children. Two minutes are up. Thank you. I'm not on the ballot November 8th, but. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Christy Wade joins us now. Christy, is that, how does that school board allow, I mean, this is, it's such pornography. The the great team at Real America's Voice, I mean, we had to kind of think through how to edit it. And, you know, we actually argued maybe some more edits. And that's just you at a school board reading from the book that's in the classroom with the seventh graders and on recommended reading list. How does this happen in the United States, ma'am? Oh my goodness. I wish I had an answer for you. Um, It's honestly, I think because we have gone so long without really understanding what is in our children's curriculum and what's on our kids' bookshelves, uh, especially with the pandemic uh, the last two years, Parents were removed from schools uh, entirely. Uh, the transparency is not there. And so I think parents just took uh, uh, on the back burner and they weren't active. They weren't proactive in their uh, kids' education and understanding you know, what's being taught. Um, but guess what? Now we know. And that's why we're speaking at school boards. Uh, this is why we're here to bring awareness uh, to parents 
not just here in Charlotte, across the country, to say this stuff is happening in our schools um, and we've got to push back. You know, we've got to leverage our First Amendment rights while we still have them uh, and say that we're not going to stand for this anymore. But why are you not? This is what I don't understand with this. When you bring this evidence in there, why are the school boards and the administrations not embracing the parents that are involved here and engaged here? Why are they not saying, oh, my gosh, we don't know how this happened. We'll take care of it. Why is it a constant fight? So, unfortunately, I think in liberal counties such as Mecklenburg County, um, we there's not enough of us pushing back. And uh, the school board, quite honestly, uh, I don't think they care. Um, as you could tell, you know, when I started my two minutes, uh, I allowed uh, parents who had students in the room, children in the room, to remove them because I was about to convey very sexually explicit content. And they didn't even allow me the, the time and the parents the opportunity to remove them um, because they just they don't care. Um, and that's uh, bottom line. That's that's my opinion. And I think it's uh, the opinion of, of many of us out there that are that are trying to speak out about this and push back on the school board and, and say we can't stand for this anymore. Do you see do you see uh, the parent right movement? Is it getting traction even in liberal counties like Mecklenburg? We see around the rest of the country it is. But do you feel it's getting um, in some of these more liberal counties? Do you think it's getting traction? Uh, it's gaining traction. It's slow. But with stuff like this, uh, it's it's gaining more traction. I think parents, I, I can't tell you how many parents over the last two years just didn't even believe me that this stuff was in, in our schools, in our libraries, and in, in the classrooms now, um, obviously on, on reading lists. But by bringing attention to this and having parents actually say, oh, my goodness, my my kid could be reading this in the classroom. Um, that's when we see more people start to step up, uh, write the school board, call in. Um, I can't tell you how much uh, pressure we just need to put on our school board to say, um, this is enough. This has to change. What? Uh, tell me, you're Moms for Liberty. What are, what are folks doing right now? This parental rights movement. I, you've said we're going to remove you on November 8th. Is there a big school board? election in Mecklenburg coming up on November 8th. Is the entire board up for, or is it, is it, uh, is it staggered? So it's staggered. Our at-large positions uh, aren't on the ballot until next year, which as you can tell, the board chair, uh, Elise Dashu, uh, boldly stated at the end that her uh, position was not up this year, um, shirking all accountability. Uh, but the district positions are. And so that's why I would say for parents in Mecklenburg County, Please do your due diligence, uh, understand who the candidates are that are running, um, understand the track record of the incumbents. Um, I, I'm a firm believer of you need to be held accountable. You have to show return on investment. Uh, clearly, ROI is not being exhibited at all in CMS. Uh, we had board members that uh, approved a half a million dollars in clear backpacks that we found out actually caused cancer. So look at all that money that was wasted taxpayer funding. Um, and of course, media isn't going to highlight this. So we have to do our due diligence. We have to understand uh, what these board members are accountable for. And if they're not showing their ROI, then we need to remove them and we need to put people in place uh, that can get the job done. Christy, how do people uh, follow you? How do they follow you on social media, the website, uh, the fight you're having down in Mecklenburg County in the great state, the great Tar Heel state of North Carolina? How do people follow you? 
Well, I would say go to our um, Moms for Liberty Mecklenburg County Facebook page is uh, probably the easiest way to get in touch with, with all of us uh, while we still have it. Um, that's really where we can share this material, this content. Uh, I initially posted the book when it was brought to my attention by the parent of the student who found it. Um, I blasted it out on that social media platform other parents then actually did their due diligence. They went to uh, J.M. Robinson, which is the school where it was found that it was on the, the recommended reading list for uh, for their seventh graders. So that's when uh, really that exploded. And using those platforms, I think, is is helpful. And then just bringing them together. How, 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 did they, how did they put this book, that Real America's Voice had to take a, a, a good bit of time to actually censor or bleep out your comments, just reading from the book. How was this book put on a recommended reading list for seventh graders? How did that happen? Well, technically it's not supposed to be on there. So um, I have, honestly, I have no idea how, uh, how it got on that recommended reading list. Um, but I would call for an investigation, which we have. Um, you know, we need to understand why these these books are in the classroom in the first place and on those recommended reading lists because they absolutely shouldn't. Christy, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward we'll cover this intensely. So thank you very much. Moms for Liberty, fighting the fight of uh, for uh, parental rights. Incredible. Thank you, Christy. <clears throat> I tell you what's interesting. There's a bunch of dads. I gave a speech last night to a large Catholic group. There's a bunch of dads uh, up in Michigan that are getting involved in this. Let's play the clip. We got Terry Schilling uh, coming in. Let's play this clip. Now, I don't know what you guys are trying to do. I don't know. Why didn't you take these books out and say, that's it. We're done with these books. But you guys want to sit here and just keep the books. You know, instead of you guys taking the six books out, we wouldn't even be here. What's the problem? What's the agenda? What are you getting out of it? What grants have you? I, I've, I did a FOIA request. I think you guys got it. 15, 15.231 as amended. And I'm going to find out everything. And I'm going to find out what grants you guys, what's it called? Who has a nonprofit organization that's funding you this money? And you guys are sitting here and just, it's, it's, it's getting ridiculous. People got kids out here. Okay, I'm not against the gay. I'm not against anything. I'm against the books. Okay, don't sit here and say that people are sitting here coming to you guys and just telling you, oh, we want these books out. You worried about the gay people? No problem. We're not worried about the gay people. We're worried about our children. Okay, and second of all, I don't want to hear anybody, okay, sitting there saying, oh, you guys are offending the, the gay. These are kids. They can be 18. They be, they, if they want to become gay, let them become gay. Who cares? It's not our problem. We don't want kids to have access to these books. It's nice and simple. I'm not going to address the situation no more. It is. It is what it is. And the only person that's behind this is Rashida Talib. Do not vote for Rashida Talib. It's nice and simple. Dearborn, Michigan. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, there's something going up there that is quite profound. The uh, There was 500 fathers that showed up the other night. As you know, we had the report this morning from Tina. 500 fathers, they're not going to back up an inch, and they're all Muslim. And they're saying, mm-mm, not on our watch, not going to happen. I want to bring in Terry Schilling. What is going on there? Because I got to tell you, another, I think, uh, group that the Democratic Party has taken for granted 
you're seeing right there, just like the Hispanics, just like the African-American men. Now you're seeing it from the Muslim community in Dearborn. They're not going to have the nuclear family shattered and they're not going to have their kids messed with. And they're certainly not going to have their kids turned against them. Terry Schilling. Well, Steve, you know, for the vast majority of America, when we had this education system that we have now, it was always moms that were running the PTAs and the school boards and really running our local communities. But we got them out of the house and we got them into the workforce and that's fine. But now, you know, you're seeing these moms going back in, but now it's finally reaching fever pitch. And that's why you have dads. You know, dads are so busy. We're so stressed out. We're the ones that are putting food on the table and really like working our butts off and stressing out about everything. So to get us to actually go to these school board meetings and voice our opinions is a really incredible thing. And it tells me that this issue is really starting to hit home with lots of people. And it's coming at a perfect time, Steve, right before the midterm elections. And it's happening in all the right places like Dearborn, Michigan. No, I mean, see, the moms are stressed too because so many of the moms have to work. They're super stressed. They get a, you know, they're the chief operating officer of the family. Traditionally, they're also because they're warriors, they're the ones now that are going to these school boards like Christy Waite and they're up in people's faces. There's something different in Dearborn. Here you have these dads and I, I've sat and watched the footage now and I told this Catholic group last night, these Muslim fathers were just sitting there going, we're not, we're, no excuses and we're not doing it, right? I mean, they were so adamant that this is not gonna happen. Uh, it was quite powerful. They said, you're not going to come in. You're not going to groom our children. You're not going to destroy our children. You're certainly not going to turn your, our children against the family and against their parents. And for them at the end to actually name the radical left uh, progressive congressman or congresswoman, and you heard the applause, right? You heard the overwhelming applause right there. Terry, hang on for one second. We're going to hold you over. We also have Joe Allen. We've got an update. Joe Allen's got a new assignment. He's going to follow the first cyborg ever running for the United States Senate. All next in the War Room. Hey, if you've sat there in the audience and followed Naomi Wolf, Christy Wade, the brave mother from Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, and then Terry Schilling and seen what's happening in Dearborn, Mission, if you are not so mad... And want to get to a ballot box and throw these bums out, then you know you maybe maybe you're watching the wrong show because I got to tell you, it's outrageous, and we have to throw these people out. That smug person, well, I'm not on the ballot, November eighth. Well, baby, one day you're going to be on the ballot, and guess what? You're going to get a democracy suppository because you're going to be gone. Okay, we believe in democracy because we got the votes, and we're going to vote all you clowns out. You're you're dangerous. You're evil. It's time for you to leave. Terry Schilling, what people don't know, we'll do it next week. You've been putting ads up in Michigan nonstop. I think a lot of the awakening of the Muslim community there in Dearborn is a fact of because so many people just have not had any clue what's going on. And as soon as the scales come off their eyes, they go like the father there. They're not, these guys are busy, but men and women are busy. They don't have time to do this. They have to do this because they have to make sure their, their, their children are educated properly in what they need to be in mathematics and science and technology and in, uh, in literature and in, uh, in rhetoric and writing and not being indoctrinated and groomed Terry Schilling. Look, I think the, the biggest proof that politics is not downstream of culture, that it's actually part of the culture and that can change things is those 500 Muslim fathers in that school board meeting last night. Those are not your typical conservative 
voters or people paying attention to this stuff, that's our campaign ads working. The, the, the campaign ads, when you're running those and targeting persuadable voters, Democrats, independents, you are communicating values. You are communicating political messages and making arguments for why they should be part of your team, part of your party, and vote the right way. This is how you affect change in the culture through politics as you run campaign ads towards soft yeah. Democrats yeah. and towards persuadable independents. That's why we had these ads up for Terry early on. This is why we have two-thirds. Look at the fathers at that school board meeting. We have two-thirds of the nation. We have differences, some differences, but basically on the big stuff, we're united. Two-thirds of the nation. It's the media and the left and all that and the, and the tech companies. They divide us. You want to unite the country? I can unite the country quite easily. Show up on November 8th and vote. You're going to throw these bums out. You're going to destroy the Democratic Party. It's a national political institution. You know why? It needs to be destroyed as a national political entity, all the way from school boards, all the way up. And nothing shows it better than the school board meetings in, in Dearborn, Michigan, when the great pro progressive Democrat congresswoman's name is mentioned, they booed and he says, you've got to vote her out and you get, you get cheers. That's change, baby. That's 1932 type change. Big league change. Terry Schilling, how do they get to the American Principles Project? How do they get to you on social media? Uh, real quick, though, I just want to say either America is going to destroy the Democrat Party or the Democratic Party is going to destroy America. And you, you, you really hit it out of the park there, Steve. Um, it's very boring. It's uh, Schilling1776 across all the platforms. I keep it pretty uniform. Getter, True Social, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Uh, Schilling 1776. Uh, love, love following you guys and love, love interacting. The, the, the handle may be boring, but the, the, the content is not. Terry Schilling, thank you very much. Honored to have you on here. Like I said, we got Thanks, Dennis guys. Prager. We got Dennis Prager on the New Testament and its relevance today, intellectually and morally, uh, coming up in a few minutes. This is what you're fighting for. I mean, every day you're out there. What they're doing is blowing people off. If you continue to look the other way and shut up, then the oppressors, the authoritarians get total control and total power. Because this is just like in Arizona. This is just like in Georgia. It's another element that backs them into a quarter and shows their lies and misrepresentations. This is why this audience is going to have to get engaged. As we've told you, this is the fight. All this nonsense, all this spin, they can't handle the truth. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. The only way to become a good person, or to make a better society, is by studying goodness. Many people think all you need to do good or be good is to have good intentions. But you can no more be good without studying how to be good than you can play piano without studying how to play piano, or practice medicine without studying medicine. There's a word for the study of goodness and how to make a good world. Wisdom. Unfortunately, however, for much of the last century, few schools and even few parents have taught wisdom. The result is moral chaos. Most of the wisdom of Western civilization, the civilization that has been the most successful in history in making good societies, comes from the Bible. That's why the Bible is the most influential book ever written. So I'll share with you some of the wisdom from just one book of the Bible, the fifth, Deuteronomy. 1. Do not show partiality in judgment, chapter 1, verse 17. A compassionate society is built on justice 
not compassion, that might sound counterintuitive. But while we should be compassionate in our private lives, the state must be preoccupied with justice. That is the reason for this law. Judges are forbidden not only to show favor to the rich, but also to the poor. The purpose of a judge is to dispense justice. Two, do not be afraid of anyone. Also chapter 1, verse 17. Every human being has fears. The question is, whom do we fear? And for most people, only if you fear God will you not fear men. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the few Germans to actively oppose the Nazi regime, and who was... Okay, uh, we're now in Volume 3. It's Friday, 14 October, the year of our Lord, 2022. We're honored to have Dennis Prager join us for his third volume of the Rational Bible. The first volume was Genesis. The second volume was Exodus and now Deuteronomy. Uh, Dennis, America is in a moral and um, moral chaos, uh, the lack of wisdom. Uh, why have you decided to, given how busy you are, I mean, you get one of the biggest radio shows in the country, you're writing columns all the time, you're speaking all the time. First of all, tell the audience, how do you find time to go and do these amazing books uh, based on the books of the uh, old, beginning books of the Old Testament? That. So I want you, 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 you will truly crack up at my response. When I got Deuteronomy in the mail, as, as soon as it was first physically published, it came out just this past week, but I got it months ago, got it in the mail. People think, oh, were you excited? Were you jubilant? Were you proud? And I give you my word of honor. This was my immediate reaction. I looked at it, saw that it was the same size as my Genesis and Exodus commentaries, and I just said to myself, when the hell did I write this? <laughs> so I have asked me <laughs> the exact same question you just asked me. I don't know the answer. <laughs> no, listen, and particularly, you know, I, I was raised, uh, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I know a lot of our evangelicals, and some of the, um, the evangelicals have a much deeper grounding than the Old Testament than uh than catholics and a lot of protestants one of the powers of your book and the reason i've recommended as you know we've had you on the show for both genesis and exodus is that if you're not deeply familiar with the wisdom uh and the power of the old testament there's no better introduction than these books and it's just so powerful what i didn't know until i got your your volume of this is how prevalent Deuteronomy it was in the founding of the nation in the writings of the founders and how much that they extracted uh, from it and used it. Uh, can you tell us about that? Why, why this is a foundation? It's a foundational uh, text of the American Republic. It's the least known, spectacularly important work. And uh, two examples: the founders, according to an American University professor who who did serious research on this, the founders cited Deuteronomy more than any other book, secular or religious which is astonishing. Second place was the French Enlightenment thinker Montesquieu. And the first was Deuteronomy. And Jesus cites Deuteronomy more than any other book of the Torah, the first five books, and any other book of the Bible except for the Psalms. So it, it just gives you an idea. And it makes perfect sense. It has the Ten Commandments, which is, are also in Exodus. 
but it has 240 laws. A society that were just governed by Deuteronomy would be a beautiful society. It, it's, however, people, their eyes glaze over when they read it. They, they don't stop and realize the staggering significance uh, of, of the book. If you want, I'll, I'll tell you now, or you could wait till later, my favorite law of the 240 uh, in Deuteronomy. No, let, let, let's hear it now, because here's one of the powers, and you had the Fox piece that was so powerful. But one of the reasons I tell people to, to get this, you, you contemporize, you can see this in, in the, the, the quandary we're in, not just the economic and financial and uh, invasion of the southern border, geopolitical, all that, but the deeper moral crisis that we're in right now as a country and, and kind of it, we've lost our moorings, right? Or maybe maybe um, the MAGA movement, maybe the conservative movement has lost their moorings, but the nation has definitely lost its moorings. And that's what I think is so powerful about this book. So tell me your tell me your favorite of the 240. What is Dennis Prager's? Yes. Top? So th th this is this is proof to me that human beings alone could not have written this stuff. It is so staggeringly different from the rest of the world then and the rest of the world for the next 3,000 years. So there's a law that if an Israelite goes into battle and they're victorious and he sees a woman he wants, he cannot touch her. He can, however, take her to his house where she is to sit and mourn her family for 30 days Again, he cannot touch her. All he does is, is provide her shelter and food while she mourns her family, who presumably died. And then if he wants her, he can only have her if he marries her. So think about the amount of rape in virtually every war in human history. And, and in the last... World War II, the amount of rape of, of by Soviet soldiers of millions of German women, it was considered booty. Women were a prize in war, period, end of issue. And, and here comes a law, you can't even touch her unless you marry her, and you can't marry her immediately. You have to see her as a human being first for 30 days while she mourns her family. So this is virtually unknown to people. It's in Deuteronomy, and that's why I say it's my favorite law in the book. Let's talk about this, you, because you talk in the Fox article, as you read through the book, seven ways forward out of this kind of moral chaos and anarchy that, that exists in, in modern America today. But talk to us, how did the two, where did the 240 laws come from? How did they evolve and eventually come right. up to actually be included in the book itself? Well, Deuteronomy is Greek for Deuteros is two, is, excuse me, is uh, second yeah, or two. And Nami is from nomos, meaning law. This is, so to speak, the second law. It's all, unlike the other books, this is all Moses speaking. He is recapitulating the laws and the events of the previous books of the of the Torah of the first five books, so that's that's why this is so significant. The man who spoke with God more directly than anyone in the Old Testament, then it says that those words only Moses ever spoke God face to face. Of course, it's it's uh, 
it's a metaphor. He never, you can't see God's face. It actually says that in, in the Torah. If, if you would die, if you saw God's face as it were, but uh, this, the greatest of all the prophets, what, what does he have to say? And he kept, keeps summarizing the laws, the need to love God, the need to obey God. And that is why the book is considered so remarkable. Why did the founders love it so much? For its moral insights and its governing insights. For example, uh, there is there is a law that uh, the king or the ruler cannot have too many horses, cannot pursue personal profit. How's this? This is another obscure law that n- almost nobody would know unless they really have studied this. He has to write for himself a Torah. He has to write all these laws down. Imagine if every president had to write the Constitution down as part, literally hand write the Constitution. That would be the equivalent. And I think it would be, I think it would be great if every member of Congress, if every judge had to write the Constitution out. So it's filled with these staggering insights. And it has the law, which Fox also published from, from my commentary, that a man cannot wear women's clothing and a woman cannot wear man's clothing. Can you imagine anything more contemporaneously relevant? Yeah, yeah, no. From thousands of years ago, a couple of millennia, and we're, we're going to get to that in a second. I'm going to pull some clips. But let me go back. You, you make this very powerful case uh, up front that uh, this was such a foundational text of the founding of our republic that um and it, it where do, and you say one of the biggest things problems with the 20th century is that we've gotten off from teaching wisdom and this book is the book is teaches a very deep um and uh powerful uh way to wisdom where in the arc of american intellectual life since this was so foundational to the to the founders in the revolutionary generation where did it where did it dissipate where where did we lose this as a foundational text to the fact that i consider myself pretty well read in that time and some of the things you brought up to me were were like i said wow i didn't know that where did that come off track where did we lose the the focus and the teaching of this very powerful document well it goes hand in hand with the secularization of america and and the west generally at, at I've asked this question my whole life. When did we go off the rails? When, when did the left, which is sort of co-equal, but not entirely because they were secular conservative, but it's sort of coextensive with secularization of the West. The, the death of the, of the Bible as the central text and the rise of the left coincide directly. At the end of the 19th century, um, most American professors who got PhDs got them in Germany. Germany had already begun its flirtation with socialism. Remember, Karl Marx was German. And one of the reasons that they, interestingly, one of the reasons that they were, uh, the Germans were into socialism was to keep Germans from moving to America. <laughs> we'll bribe you to stay in Germany. It's, it's, it's so fascinating history, these tidbits of, of the forks on the, in yes. the road that, that make history. Anyway, these professors would come back. They, they were steeped already then from Germany. 
I have, by the way, just a parenthetical note. I have many mottos about life. One of them is Germany is always wrong. <laughs> it's, it's one of my <laughs> ways of understanding the human condition. <laughs> there are a lot of nice individual Germans, but Germany is always wrong. It's really, it's eerie. Uh, up through Angela Merkel. I mean, she, she really screwed up Europe. Uh, with her reliance on, yes. on Russian oil, with her knocking out nuclear power, with her bringing in a million people uh, from from the Middle East. I mean, just mistake after mistake. I, their their batting average is is close to zero, which which is you know even just flipping a coin you should bat five hundred. So <laughs> anyway, they they went to Germany. Uh, they got their PhDs in Germany came back and gradually we ended up with the secularization and the leftization, if you will, of the society and uh, the, uh, the arrogant belief. And it is so arrogant that only the, the Greek word hubris fits that we know better than the Bible. This is a given uh, uh, among secularists and certainly leftists. We are wiser, not, not, and by the way, not only than the Bible, we are wiser than Washington, Lincoln, Madison, Jefferson. The, the hubris of what I think is right and what this world-changing document thinks is wrong is, is quite amazing. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because in the Fox piece and in the book, you make the case that we're in uh, not just moral, but intellectual, right? Mm -hmm. we, we've lost our way. America's lost our way, both morally and intellectually, in that mm -hmm. there's seven there's seven ways forward, as 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 you see in Deuteronomy. So walk us through that. How does the book actually give America a guide to get out of this quandary where we're both morally, we have moral and intellectual chaos? Well, I'll, I'll just begin with the intellectual chaos. A society that says that men give birth, it transcends moral chaos. It means that objective truth no longer exists. To say that men give birth is a lie doesn't fully grasp the magnitude of the intellectual farce that, that we're engaged in. The amount of, of lies people have to have to say are true. America is systemically racist is, is another example, uh, is is an intellectual problem. The 45 uh, percent of American young people say that, quote, I am for free speech, but not for hate speech, not understanding that the latter makes the former impossible. If you are for banning hate speech, you are not for free speech. It, it, it means if you say you're for free speech except for hate speech, what you're saying is I'm for free speech only if the speech I agree with. <coughs> Excuse me. That, that's the that's what you're saying. And they don't it's it's not only a morally problematic statement, it's intellectually problematic. They don't understand that what they said makes no sense. If you are for free speech, you are for allowing hate speech. That's definitional to free speech. The, the, the intellectual caliber of the average professor is minuscule. 
it, it, it's not that just that they're, they're moral fools. The, the intellectual level of, of the university, the, do you know how often I see basic grammatical errors in, in, in articles that I, that I read? People don't know the difference between it's and it's with a, an apostrophe. I, I wonder if most high school graduates or, or even college graduates can define an apostrophe. The intellectual level is, is is so low. People don't study music and art. They've substituted vast amounts of sex for music, art, and literature. That the, that the University of Pennsylvania, an Ivy League school, the English department would take down the mural of the greatest writer of English, William Shakespeare, and instead put up a mural of a gay Caribbean uh, a poet. Because she's female, she's gay, and she's not white. They don't give a damn about intellectual excellence at the universities. Forget they don't. their moral barometer is broken. They don't give a damn about intellectual honesty or intellectual rigor. Taking down Shakespeare's mural at the English department? that Because he was white and European and male? What does that have to do with the excellence of his work? So uh, the whole intellectual world has crumbled, and and I I knew why when I was at Columbia. And I wrote an essay like twenty years ago, how I found God at Columbia, and this is a true story. I I was going a little nuts while I was at graduate school at Columbia, because I was being taught nonsense. I was at the School of International Affairs where I majored in communist affairs. And I was taught that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were essentially moral equivalents, that it was two superpowers fighting for power, not tyranny versus freedom, but superpower versus superpower. I was taught that men and women are basically the same. So uh, it's worse today, but it, it, it was already then. Anyway, one day, it's the only time in my life I could say I had an epiphany, something just plopped into my brain. Uh, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. I was walking around the campus wondering why is why are bright people teaching me nonsense? And all of a sudden, a phrase in Hebrew came to me that I had last said in first grade. I went to yeshiva till the yeshiva. Uh, it's a, a religious Jewish school, rigorous, half the day in Hebrew, half the day in English, very rigorous education. And in first grade, we would say at the beginning of the day, certain verses from the Bible in Hebrew. And I had not said it since first grade. And it came into my brain as a graduate student answering my question, why are so many smart people teaching me nonsense? Wisdom begins with fear of God. And I then realized there's no wisdom at Columbia because there's no God or Bible at Columbia. And that changed my life. That's why I call it an epiphany. So that's regards the intellectual. Now, regarding uh, the, uh, the moral and the guidelines from De Deuteronomy, I'll give you one, uh, any number of examples you want, just ask me. But here's a big one. You cannot favor the poor or the rich in judgment. That verse alone shatters the concept of social justice. 
In the Bible, there's only social, there's only justice. There is no term social justice. Either something is just or not just. Social justice is not just. That's why they don't call it justice. Social modifies justice to make it an injustice. If a poor man and a rich man are in your courtroom, social justice dictates that you favor the poor man. Justice says that you favor who is right. For the left, social justice trumps justice. And, and that's, that verse alone from Deuteronomy is life-changing. Let me go back me go and tie, back that, and tie to that to what you just said at Columbia. And you, in, you in, talk in, about um, wisdom and going forward w- with the country. If Columbia, if you look at the United States today, and particularly the administrative state, of which the Harvard and the Yale and the Columbia guys all, all you know, they, they're all the factotums. They're, they're, they're the people that man this, the, the Ivy League schools, the best and the brightest. If there's no fear of God there, they're, they're beyond secular now. I think it, when you see the apparatus in, in, in the way it works, it's actually atheistic. So how can the country have wisdom, the type of wisdom you need to be a world leader, the type of wisdom you need to be what we've done for two centuries is to be the not just the beacon of liberty but to be able to be uh someone that can show people what it means to be free men and women if 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 we have no fear of god in the administrative state and in fact they mock god every day in the administrative state how do we go forward as a nation well let me deal with the fear of god issue because it's so important by the way you will find this uh, very uh, very interesting I think I feel a little wrong in telling you what you'll find interesting, but I, I, I think you will. Uh, very many modern translations do not use the word fear when the Hebrew, and I know biblical Hebrew like English, when the Hebrew does say fear God, they say revere God. Many modern translations are uncomfortable with the idea that people should fear God. By the way, there's only one other being that we are supposed to fear, and that is mother and father. There's an explicit law in the Torah. A man shall fear his mother and father. It puts mother first because you're more likely to fear your father, and it wants parental equality. And... Always now you see a man shall revere his mother and father. Bullcrap. Fear. And they're the only beings that we're told to fear. God and our parents. There is a hierarchy in life. Our parents are above us and God is above our parents. As regards fear of God, let me just say this. If all Germans feared God more than man, it wouldn't have been World War II or Hitler or the Holocaust. If more Russians feared God than Stalin, it wouldn't have been a gulag. If Chinese feared God more than Mao, it wouldn't have been 60 million slaughtered by the communist regime in China. Fear of God is the essence of liberation from fear of man and we saw it in the United States. The only organized opposition to the irrational mandates 
of uh, of the last few years, the unscientific, uh, unconstitutional lockdowns was was from the religious community. Most religious leaders were sheep, just like the secular. I say with great sadness because I'm religious. It's true for the synagogue. It's true for the churches. But what organized opposition did exist was overwhelmingly religious. That's because these people feared a God more than the New York Times or the CDC. <laughs> uh, Dennis, can you hang on for one second? We're going to take a uh, commercial, a short commercial break. The third volume in the series, The Rational Bible, Deuteronomy, is now joining Exodus and Genesis. Dennis Prager has uh, written these, the commentary. We're going to discuss it more, the moral intellectual chaos in our nation and how the first books of the Old Testament can act as a tremendous guide. Next in the war. War Room Battleground with Stephen K. Bannon. With gratitude, we, the students of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School class of 2026, stand here today among our friends, families, peers, mentors, and communities who have supported us in reaching this milestone. Our institution is located on Dakota land. Today, many indigenous people throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, call the Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening and amplifying voices for positive change. We pledge to honor all indigenous ways of healing that have been historically marginalized by Western medicine. Knowing that health is intimately connected to our environment, we commit to healing our planet and communities. We vow to embrace our role as community members and strive to embody cultural humility. We promise to continue restoring trust in the medical system and fulfilling our responsibilities as educators and advocates. We commit to collaborating with social, political, and additional systems to advance health equity. We will learn from the scientific innovations made before us and pledge to advance and share this knowledge with peers and neighbors. We recognize the importance of being in community with and advocating for those we serve. Okay, welcome back. That's the University of Minnesota Medical School. Not exactly the Hippocratic Oath they took to start. That's really, they're really starting their education. I want to bring in Dennis Prager. Dennis, how did we go from a republic that was founded on the, on the three-legged stool of Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome? Uh, in these great, uh, powerful writings of wisdom of the Old and New Testament, the Bible, the Holy Bible, as the foundational document, to what you just saw there that took place a, a week or so ago in um, in Minnesota. I wrote a piece years ago, How the Left Keeps Me Religious, and what you just showed is an example. I took a vow 40 years ago when I began radio that not only would I 
be fanatically committed to the truth, but I would try never to exaggerate because over time you lose your credibility. You can exaggerate for only a certain amount of time. So this is not an exaggeration to say that the left is as much a source of my belief in God and the Bible as the, as God and the Bible are. And what do I mean? The left hates the God of the, of, of the Western religions, of the Judeo-Christian religions. They think at, at the very least, if they don't hate him, they want to get rid of him. And they certainly want to get rid of the Bible, which they have successfully done in most cases. I, I didn't even see one. I checked in my last hotel room. There was no Bible. Alaska Airlines used to give biblical verses out with their meals. Now there are no meals and there are no biblical verses on Alaska Airlines. We, we have truly made this place Bible rein, free of Bible. So if the left had produced a beautiful world, intellectually and morally uplifting, I would have been challenged in my faith. Look, you can oppose the Bible. You can say it's completely irrelevant. You can say you have better values than it and produce something beautiful. I would have been challenged. I fully admit it. My, my faith is, is completely through reason, which is why I call my Bible commentaries the rational Bible. I don't say it's the only way to get to God, but it is my way. But they are so awful. They are so, uh, they are so morally and intellectually divorced from what is good and what is true. What you just saw is a cult. It is a cult, and all of those young people reciting it have been rendered sheep. We are really going to have indigenous medicine as opposed to Western medicine treat us? Were there any indigenous, indigenous people's hospitals? Did they come up with antibiotics and surgery? What is the lie, the lie that these people are telling to themselves, and these are our future doctors and nurses. If this doesn't scare you, then you you you, uh, you don't get scared properly. There's times to be scared and times not to. This is scary. What we are seeing. No, and I want to say something. This is this sure. this is not this is not this is not. You were at Columbia, you know, the top of the intellectual, but this is one of the top medical schools in the Midwest. These are not some community college or a, a group of. Uh, of uh, hippies out on some uh, some uh, farm. This is one of the most significant medical schools in the Midwest. How did I, how did this get embedded into our institutions? I can understand if people go and do this. It's a free country. You can go believe what you want to believe. You can follow whatever you think your spiritual calling is or your intellectual calling. But how did it get embedded into the basic heart of the system, Dennis Prager? Well, I have an answer, and that is everything the left touches, it ruins. You cannot name a discipline. I, I'm an amateur uh, musician. I, I conduct orchestras periodically. So I, I, know, I know music pretty well. What, what began when the left started infiltrating culture was through the arts. First, it was the arts early 20th century. So in music, they came up with atonal music. For music to be music, 
it generally has to have melody, harmony, and tonality. If you don't have a tonal bass, if it's not in C or uh, E flat or whatever, then you have basically cacophony, just sounds, but they don't make anything not only beautiful, but meaningful. So it began there, of course, in the arts, you, you ended up with, with uh, one of the, the most uh, respected painters standing on a ladder and throwing cans of paint onto a canvas, Jackson Pollock. And many people consider them great works of art. They go for tens of millions of dollars. You, you now have the New York Times uh, had a, a, a front page in its art section and I actually cite this in, in, my, uh, in my commentary in another context, where the entire museum, this gigantic museum in the Netherlands, had a, an exhibition of sculpted poop. Yes, poop as in fecal matter. And the reviewer took it seriously, walking among giant sculpted poops that were way taller than she was. This, this is what happens in a post-Judeo-Christian world. Poop is beautiful. Men give birth. Cacophony is music. And now you have this. Everything the left touches. The left is a, the left is a force of chaos. God made order for six days. God did not create for six days. God created very little in the creation story. He created the world in Genesis 1-1 and then created animals and humans. And that's it. The rest of the time, God makes order out of chaos. The second verse is chaos. The first verse is creation. The left, by rejecting this, is trying to undo order and make chaos. You saw that in the in the film you showed. And you're saying uh, you're saying that that is uh, a cult. I just want to make sure because I totally agree with that. Let me That's show you. Correct. We have doc, we had Dr. Miriam. We had Dr. Miriam Grossman on the show mm -hmm. yesterday, who's one of the experts in, in fighting this uh, gender uh, ideology, radical gender ideology. Let's go to the cut of Dr. Miriam Grossman. To share with you and your audience, I, I, I spoke to a dad yesterday from Connecticut. He told me the following story. He has a very emotionally disturbed daughter. She uh, had multiple psychiatric hospitalizations because she was suicidal. During one of those hospitalizations, she heard about being transgender and she started to go in that direction. He would not accept it. He would not accept that she was a boy. He just would, wouldn't hear about it. She was his daughter and he wasn't gonna budge on that. During one of her hospitalizations, Child Protective Services came in and they would not allow the girl to be discharged to her family. For that reason, because the, the father refused to call her by a different name, a boy's name, and refused to use male pronouns. This father has not seen his daughter for three years. Three years, the, the Department of Child Protective Services took her away from a loving, wonderful family. This could happen 
to any family. People need to know that you're not immune. This is what's going on. If you don't, if you insist on living in reality and you will not uh, go along with your confused child's new identity, your home is considered unsafe and your child can be taken away and put into foster care indefinitely. Dennis Prager, um, the family, the nuclear family is at the center of the Judeo-Christian West civilization. Uh, it is under assault by every aspect, big tech, big media, everything. But it seems like where it's most assault is this radical ideology that's perpetuated by the state. What say you, sir? When I said it was a cult, one of the proofs is that every single cult's first attack is on parental authority. So that the, in the Soviet Union, you had uh, obedience to the party is much greater than to your parents. Every kid was supposed to join Komsomol, the Soviet Youth League. And Hitler, it was the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth. You took a, a vow of obedience to Hitler, not to your parents. And in cults, that's, of course, what they do. Don't trust your family. Trust me, your cult leader. Parental authority is a major barrier to totalitarianism. The bigger the government, the smaller the parent. The bigger the parent, the smaller the government, just the way it works. So this, this, the left wants power. More than anything, it wants power. The story that Miriam Grossman told, uh, I, I, I don't want to cry on your show, but I, I could. I, I can't, but my anger is greater than my sadness, so I, I guess that works. But they took away this man's daughter because he's actually doing the right thing and saying, you're a girl and you need to embrace that fact. God made you a girl or nature made you a girl, whichever language would work better. You are a girl. And uh, that that is now considered a reason to take a child from a parent. The state can do that, and, and Americans are, are having their dinner at a restaurant in peace. It, it really does prove that people don't, don't really yearn for, for liberty. They, they rather tune out at the, the ongoing Sovietization of our society, which is, which is exactly what is happening. How do, how do we combat this? We had the most important midterm election since 1862, since the early years of the Civil War. We have a financial crisis, an economic crisis, geopolitically. You know, this weekend is the 20th Party uh, Congress, so she's going to be emperor for life. We've got invasion of the southern border, whole issues about the nation's sovereignty. But it seems to me that this is deeper, more profound and more difficult to overcome. We've got about five minutes left in the show. You've spent your career Talking about these issues in the last couple of years, you've given commentary on the foundational text of the Judeo-Christian West. In Dennis Prager's mind, what then is to be done? Look, we all have uh, a limited span of years. I'm very healthy. My parents live very long, but you never know when you'll die. And that's true when you're 40, and it's true when you're in your 70s, as I just turned. And I have decided to devote these past 10 years 
to a Bible commentary because I don't think that there is any other way out than people taking the seminal work of history seriously. The problem is you can't pick up the Bible and just read it and know what's going on, especially this, the foundational first five books. You, you can sort of follow it, but, but to draw the conclusions that need to be drawn, uh, I think, uh, needs an explanation. So I, I, do, I do believe, and I, as it were, I, I put my time where my mouth is. <laughs> and, and, you know, nobody writes a commentary on Deuteronomy to get wealthy. I think that we can all agree on that. And most Americans don't know what Deuteronomy is, even though it's the most cited text by the founders and after Psalms, even by Jesus. But this is, this is the answer. It's for people to start to understand what we need to take seriously, God and the Bible. By the way, God alone without the Bible is, in my opinion, useless. If, you, if, if God didn't reveal his will, at least in the Ten Commandments, then, then what God do you believe in? And I, I, would, I, I do argue, and, I, and I, I make this point in the commentary, when people say they believe in God, you know nothing about the God they believe in, and you know nothing about them. Literally nothing. Hitler's troops went with a belt that said, Gott mit uns, God is with us. Did they believe in the God of the Ten Commandments? Of course not. They believe in the God of the Bible? No, but they believed in God. And atheists use that argument all the time against those of us who, who speak about the centrality of God to ethics. Oh, there were Nazis who believed in God. Yeah, they used the term, but they didn't believe in the God of this book. What... Um... I want to walk people through how they get access to all your writings and everything you're working on. You've got PragerU, you've got your radio show, you do commentary, you write articles, uh, you've got this, you've got Deuteronomy. And are you going to, is this going to end your Bible commentary or are you? I, this is only, forward? it's the, it's the fifth volume of the first five volumes, but I didn't do them in order. So I still have numbers in Leviticus to go. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a big, it's it's a it's it's a big project. I'm in the middle of numbers, and then with Leviticus, I've already written twenty thousand words on one verse in Leviticus, that man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. And uh, I, I wrote, you've, already, you've already written twenty thousand twenty thousand words on one on, on, on just on one, one verse of Leviticus, because it it's, takes that long to explain what what the what the bible intended here it has nothing to do with hatred of the gay it has nothing to do with bigotry but what what was what was the attempt and i did obviously a lot of research and so that's how i got the twenty thousand words and by the way just for for your your listeners i do write interestingly <laughs> i i work mo most hard on on making it terse concise and interesting Anyway, you can access any of my books through Amazon. Obviously, it's very—they're all—they're all there. You can access uh, one thousand of my columns, literally, on the internet. Uh, the, many of them are listed at townhall.com. Jewish World Review is the only one I know of that lists every single one of the thousand. Uh, but it's, it's also published by American Greatness and and the Daily Wire and others. And of course, I have a I have a weekly fireside chat. 260 something have already been done. I only missed one week 
because I had COVID and I didn't want the uh, the photographers or the video people to come in. I would have been happily uh, happily to do it. I've I've gotten COVID twice. I'm not vaccinated, and I'm fine. In fact, I'm not vaccinated and therefore I'm fine is more accurate than I'm not vaccinated and fine. <laughs> oh, and also I'm now doing, what, uh... Uh, uh, let me just say this. This is really fascinating. Yeah. I now do for the first time in my life, I am co-hosting something, a podcast called Dennis and Julie. You can watch it on YouTube and you can listen through any, any medium, including my website. And uh, she is she is 50 years younger than I am. And uh, it's fascinating to see the dialogues that we have. This is she's she's a wunderkind in every sense of the word. I see her as carrying on my values. She's not the only one, but but she's preeminent. I, I, I she she sort of fell into my life. Uh, and, and, and I, I, anyway, people should watch It's called Dennis and Julie. It, it, it's riveting. We definitely will. Um, Dennis, also the radio show. When can people pick up your, your uh, your renowned well, radio show? Yeah. Thank you. It, it's, it's of course on stations in, in most of the cities of the country or just go, uh, on, uh, on iHeartRadio or just go to DennisPrager.com and, you know, listen oh. to the Dennis Prager show. You can get it without commercials through Pragertopia. That's Utopia with the Prager. I'm I'm very grateful for your empathy. But the rational Bible. That's the book. I absolutely love this book. And I've loved uh, Exodus and Genesis. So thank you very much. And uh, can't wait for Leviticus and Numbers. Dennis Prager, thank you for joining us in the war room. Honored Appreciate it. Honored.